We left off with Jesus speaking of the new birth with Nicodemus, who we kind of gave him a little nickname, Nick at Night. And how that new birth is made possible, remember, uh, those who are behind the tree, I'm looking at you, you just can't see me. So just know right now, I can see you. I can see Brian's little face right through there. So, And, and remember that the new birth was made possible because of the lifting up, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And now... Jesus is going to go into a fuller explanation of that event. What we're looking at here, and I titled this passage, this is a really simple title so that everyone can understand it. It's a rescue mission. That is exactly what we are looking at in John 3, 16 through 21. Here we have the mission brief. This is why Jesus is there talking to Nicodemus at this time. It is a passage that we are very familiar with and maybe even too familiar with, isn't it? I believe sometimes when we read a scripture like this we, and we're used to, we kind of miss the impact and the depth of what is being said. We look at this passage today, we gotta to remember that Nicodemus doesn't have John 3:16 on his wall where they're eating every night, where it says, For God so loved the world. Nicodemus knows about God's love for Israel, but God's love for the world is a different matter. It's always good to place ourselves in the position of the New Testament audience or the Old Testament audience to gain that, gain that impact of exactly what is being said. When, I, when we do that, I think we're going to gain new insight, especially, hopefully, new appreciation for this passage today. The Guardian, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but it is a movie about the Coast Guard rescue swimmers, about the heroic and sacrificial efforts of this unit that belongs to the Coast Guard. And at the end of the movie, there's a DVD bonus feature. And some of the rescue swimmers who are real rescue swimmers get interviewed. Rescue swimmer Joseph Flyde says this in talking about Hurricane Katrina. He said, Hurricane Katrina really brought out what a Coast Guard rescue swimmer is all about. It was these people who were unsung, they were called unsung heroes before they were plastered all over the national media during this event. It was the Coast Guard rescue swimmers that you saw go down to the roofs, plucking people out. Roof, they were working all over the place. They were working 18 to 24 hours a day around the clock, pushing themselves to the limit, he says. A pilot comments and he says, I've been flying for over 10 years and Katrina was always some fictitious, theoretical, it may never happen event. But they always ask themselves the question, what would we do if we had to save over 30,000 people? And sure enough, that's exactly what they did during Hurricane Katrina. 
Bob Watson talks about the nature of a rescue, the moving nature of a rescue. He said, there's nothing like it at all. Looking at their faces as you are saving them from disaster. Looking at their face when you are helping them out. Their eyes are big and you get them to where they need to be. It's a really cool thing, he says. As other scenes of rescues are shown, rescue swimmer John Hall concludes with this. He said, this is my job. I have volunteered myself to put myself in harm's way for somebody that I don't know. So I better be ready when that call comes in. That's my calling as far as I'm concerned. It is not taken lightly and I never take a shortcut around it. The Coast Guard Rescue Swimmers motto, does anyone know their motto? So that others may live. I have a lot of esteem for them. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you later on in the sermon, I wanted to actually be a rescue swimmer. It was a dream of mine. Folks, the world faces a very similar circumstance as that in Katrina. It is drowning. It is drowning spiritually. As a matter of fact, it finds itself at the bottom of the ocean. And it is in desperate, dire need of a rescue. God knew this. He saw the situation that we find ourselves in. And he did something about it. He sent to us a rescuer. However, this person did not just risk his life to save us, but he gave it in order to do so. If there is any phrase or motto that we could borrow from today to sum up the mission, the purpose of Jesus Christ, it is so that others may live. Jesus Christ came to save us from wrath and condemnation so that we can spend eternity in heaven with him. Here in this passage, we see the heart of the gospel. We see the heart of the mission of Jesus Christ, but we also see, and sometimes we miss this, we see the heart of God our Father. And I hope in all of this, we gain a new appreciation for it. And our faces are like those who were being rescued during Katrina, beaming with joy, with gratefulness, and with relief. I summed up this mission into three aspects. Three aspects of this rescue mission initiated by God and acted upon by Jesus Christ. So the first aspect are the reasons for the mission. The reasons for the mission, verses 16 through 17. And if you're following along in your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Is anyone familiar with the song, Don't Worry, I'm Not Gonna Sing? Even though I have been watching American Idol religiously for the past few weeks, I feel like I can sing, but I'm not going to sing. Has anyone heard the song, Where Is the Love? By Donny Hathaway, Roberta Flack. I've never heard of that song. But they sang this unforgettable hit in 1972. And Where Is the Love? Their breakup ballad could now double as an anthem for American culture. Sadly, it seems like America's art and entertainment industry has grown bored with love, has rejected romance and intimacy. All of these things have all but vanished from our pop culture. In 2014, the Journal of Advertising Research published a study documenting an odd decline in references to love throughout popular music. As a matter of fact, the word love had fallen below phrases such as a good time and other sexually and racially vulgar words that were topping the hits in the 2000s. So the mention of love falls below uses of those other themes, believe it or not. Music critic John Blake took seven took, took notice seven years ago of how R&B no longer produced or broadcasted songs of love and romantic passion. They said film isn't much better. Esquire recently reported that moviegoers are bored of love, bored of romance, and find boy meets girl movies as cliches and sometimes offensive. Does that surprise you about American culture? To grow bored with something? I mean, right? We know that that's expected in American culture, but sometimes I think that the American church grows bored with God's love and treats verses like this one as a cliché. Something that has lost its depth, meaning, and impact. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God did not grow bored with us, aren't you? I am thankful that God didn't create this world and then saw how we were continuing in our sin, our rebellion, and corruption, and say, you know what? This movie needs a rewrite. I'm tired of these people. I'm going to start over because that's what humans do. Oh no. God didn't grow bored with us. God endeavored to save us. It's a very popular verse. We're all very familiar with it. John 3.16. We can probably, probably repeat it in our sleep if we had to. We see the signs that are held up at sporting events and even wrestling events and 
other events. John 3.16, For God so loved the world. But I think that it is a verse that we've become all too familiar with. And I wonder sometimes, even as I read this passage, do I really understand exactly what is being said here? Here we have the first reason, or really the motivation, for the mission of Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus talking to Nicodemus there on earth? Why is God incarnate in the form of Jesus Christ having this conversation with Nicodemus? Because he loves this world. He loves you and I. That's why he's there. This is the motivation behind why God gave us Jesus Christ. He loves us. That's it. The mission of Jesus Christ is a direct expression of God's love for this world. It is grounded in love. Imagine Nicodemus hearing this. You, you love this world? I know that you love Israel, but this world, a world that is bent on sin, corruption, and rebellion? This isn't a world that is in awe with God. This isn't a world that is always doing good to one another. Oh no. Far from it. The mission of Jesus Christ is a direct expression of God's love for us. That's why he's there. He's there because he loves us. And notice you expect him to say that God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his son, right? It doesn't say that, does it? How much does God love the world? God loves the world so much. He loves us so much. He saw us in our sin, rebellion, and corruption. That he gave us his one and only son. Why was the Son of Man mocked? Why was the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, spat upon? Why was he ridiculed? Why was the Son of Man brutally beaten? Why was he meticulously tortured? on one of the most deadliest devices known in that time. Why did he hang on a cross naked for death? I'm looking at the reasons. I'm looking at them. All around. Because God loves us. That's why. God loves us so much that he sent his son and gave him over to his enemies so that his enemies can become his friends. The girl sitting in this audience today, my daughter, And as parents, we know, as skewed as 
our efforts may be and flawed sometimes, what's our goal? Protect them, right? Protect them from pain and suffering. Protect them from spiritual pain, from emotional pain, from psychological pain, from physical pain. Protect them. I tell you, there is absolutely nothing I wouldn't do for that girl. You would, it would take the largest army in the world. You'd have to destroy me before you got to her and before I handed her over into men's hands, knowing exactly what they were going to do to her. But that's exactly what God did. Gave them. Into their hands to be beaten and tortured and spat upon and ridiculed. And he just does it not out of hatred, not out of condemnation, not out of judgment. He does it because he loves us. That's why. I tell you, I had to ask myself, do I love the world like this? Do I love unbelievers like this? Do I have this heart? This is an intense love. It's a choice. He makes a choice. And he makes that choice while we were sinners. Jesus Christ died for us. I can imagine Nicodemus' jaw dropping at this point. It's not that Jesus enters into a world that is neutral. He enters into a world that is in absolute rebellion against him. They hate him. And look what they did to God incarnate. They crucify him. And he does this not to condemn them. God does not send Jesus seeking an excuse to judge us or to condemn us, does he? He sends Jesus to save us to pluck us from the fire, to save us from drowning in that judgment. That's why. So that we may have eternal life with Him. Whosoever believes will not perish, will not be judged, but have eternal life. That's the promise that He gives us. I often talk to people, and I, some people that... You know, view God as this harsh judge, always looking for an excuse to do what? Hey, what are you doing there? I got your number. I'm after you. They see God as a God of hatred. They see God as their enemy. It's the wrong view of God. It's just not who He is. We have the motivation behind the mission, which is love. And the theme or the purpose of the mission to save us. Jesus is the rescuer that God sent. He gave us his son so that you and me will not perish but have eternal life from him. That is the truth. And it is a truth that we often forget. He did not say, come to condemn the world, but to save it. Remember what I said, Jesus does not enter into a world that is neutral. It's a world that stands condemned. But he offers us a way out. He offers us his son. 
leads us to verse 18, second aspect of this mission, the repercussions. Verse 18. He who does not, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Walter McMillan was a gentleman who was convicted of killing 18-year-old Rhonda Morrison at a dry cleaner in Monroeville, Alabama in 1986. Three witnesses testified against McMillan, while six witnesses who were black testified that he was at a church fish fry at the time of the crime. McMillan was found guilty and he was held on death row for six years, all the while claiming his innocence. An attorney named Brian Stevenson decided to take on the case to defend McMillan. Stevenson told a reporter it was a pretty clear situation where everyone wanted to just forget about this man, let him be executed so we could all move on. He said there was a lot of passion and anger in the community about the death, and I think there was great resistance to someone coming in and fighting for this condemned man who had been accused and already convicted. However, with Stevenson's representation, McMillan was exonerated in 1993. He was eventually freed, but not without the scars of being on death row. One of those scars was an early onset of dementia. Stevenson comments, many of the doctors believed it was a function of his experience of being nearly killed. It was trauma-induced. He had witnessed eight executions while he was on death row. So even after he was set free from death row, free from prison, and an exonerated man, his mind, in his mind, he was still a prisoner. Stevenson would visit him in the hospital and he kept telling his lawyer, you've got to get me off death row. Folks, I'm going to tell you something right now. Jesus Christ gets us off death row. Gets us off, takes us off, sets us free, never ever again to be judged. Never, ever again to have to pay the penalty for our crimes. The difference between us and this man in this illustration is every single one of us deserved to be there. We're not innocent. Jesus was innocent. And because Jesus was innocent, and because Jesus took on our sin, you and me who believe in him are set free for all eternity. And sometimes we're like this guy and we have a hard time remembering that. We still think we're on death row in our minds. 
I think it's afro is a good comparison here, especially what we're speaking of. Because it is a coming judgment, isn't it? You and I, apart from Jesus Christ, stand condemned already. I remember when I was 17 years old, I committed a crime. I broke into someone's house at night and I robbed them. Me and my buddies thought it'd be a fun time to go ahead and do that, trash their house and take their belongings because we needed a stereo for our party. At that point, when I did that action, was I guilty? Absolutely. What was I waiting for? The police to catch up to me. I was waiting for that day that eventually did come when I sat in that room with that judge and he passed down his judgment. But just because he made that judgment doesn't didn't make me any more guilty than I already was, does it? That is exactly where we are right now. Apart from Jesus Christ, we stand condemned, waiting for that judgment to happen. It's a coming judgment. And though that man didn't deserve to be there, we do. So the mission of Jesus Christ flows from or is grounded in God's love. Its purpose is to save mankind. And now that because Jesus has come, we have two repercussions. We have two options. Two. I know that in American culture, we like all of our options, don't we? Choices make us, what, happy. The more choices we have, the happier we are. Like coffee. You go to the store, and even though I think that only one coffee should exist, and that's Starbucks, we have lots of coffee to choose from. We have Dunkin' Donuts, we have Green Mountain, we got Rifle Coffee, Black Rifle Coffee, we got, you name it, there's a coffee. Guess what? Spirituality, heaven and hell don't operate in that way. There are only two choices. Two choices. It is either that we believe in Jesus Christ and accept the provision for what we have done, or we reject that and we face the consequences of doing that. Two repercussions. There is no other scenario. And I want to be as honest with you as possible up here. I want to tell you the truth because I love you. When you die, there are no second chances, folks. God's love isn't going to allow everybody in rebellion against him their entire lives to just walk through the gates of heaven. There's no period or place or time period where when I die, I suffer for a period of time for my sins, paying off those sins, and then enter into heaven. That's blasphemy. If Jesus Christ doesn't take care of all my sins, past, present, and future, he takes care of none of them. That's it. We don't like not having many options in this culture. We like gray areas. This world doesn't like coming down on one side or another. Truth is relevant 
to one situation, isn't it? It's whatever makes us happy. There is no absolute truth. There is no reality. Folks, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a satanic illusion. It's just not real. John, throughout this gospel, works in exacting contrast, doesn't he? It's either heaven or hell. It's either life or death. It's either light or darkness. It's either salvation or condemnation. There is no middle ground. God is promising you something here. What is He promising you? If you believe, you are forgiven. If you believe, you are set free. If you believe, you will not be judged. Period. That word is in the present tense. It means you're not being judged and you're not going to be judged. Why? Because Jesus Christ took that judgment on His person, in His body, in His flesh. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Him. Folks, this is the doctrine of justification. It is justification. It is salvation through faith alone, nothing else. Nothing. It is the greatest doctrine in Scripture. It is why the Gospel is good news. It is why the Gospel is a free gift given to us. He says, here, take my righteousness. I'm going to take your sin. I paid for it. No matter what you've done, I don't care. Past, present, or future, I don't care. How wicked your sins are, Jesus Christ paid for those on the cross. And you will never ever, ever have to face the judgment of those sins because he took it. Notice what he doesn't say. Does he say, believe and go to church? Believe and read your Bible? Believe and say your prayers three times daily? Believe and give money. Believe and don't sin anymore. Oh no. You believe you're set free. You will not be judged. I can imagine what Nicodemus thought at this point. Jesus, what about the sacrifices, Jesus? Jesus, what about going to going to the synagogue, Jesus? Jesus, what about giving the money, Jesus? What about all the offerings, Jesus? What about the law, Jesus? And Jesus says, that's me. All of those things point to me. I fulfilled all of that for you. My favorite verse of all time. You say it with me. Romans 8, 1, therefore... There is no condemnation. None. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If there's any tattoo. How many people have tattoos? You don't got to raise your hand. You might be embarrassed about that. I got tattoos. One right here. One right there. This one, I don't even know what it says in Chinese. It probably says I'm an idiot. You just believe them. You're like, yeah, that's what that means. <laughs> he's laughing the whole time as he's doing it. 
If I got any tattoo again, it'd be Romans 8.1. I'd get it right on my forearm. I'd get it right there. Yeah, for people to see, but mainly for me to see. When does Paul say that? Does Paul say that when he's the best Christian going around, when everything is going honky-dory, when he's in full, complete obedience to God? No, he says it when he's a wretch. And he reminds himself, yeah, I'm this big, fat sinner. I don't do the things I want to do, but bang, right here, baby. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to imagine that on your arm for the rest of your life. And every time the flesh, Satan in this world, tosses your guilt and your unworthiness in your face, you just look at that. Because that's what he does. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? But there's bad news too. If you don't believe that, if you don't accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, you stand condemned. You know, many people kind of want to take the love of God and make it this blanket that God's just going to wink at sin. I know Jessica Alba, she was an actress and she grew up as a, she's an actress, she grew up as a Christian, but then left the faith because she looked at, she married this bisexual, transgendered man and had a baby, or I can't remember, and she, she looked at him and, or she fell in love with him or something, and she said to herself, there's no way that God's going to send him to help. God is love, she says, and people are humans. And we're all humans. What's that mean, human? We're sinners. Is she right in both of those things? Yeah. God is love and man alive. We're sinners. But does God love, is God's love going to just welcome everyone into heaven that has been in rebellion against? Oh, hey, it's okay you, you cussed me to my face. It's okay that you didn't take the provision of your disease for your sin in my son. It's okay. Come on in. No, that's all water under the bridge. Folks, our own, our own society testifies to judgment. If our society judges crime, if our society has laws, then I'm going to go with the fact that God says too. I promise you something that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. He doesn't get excited about the death of the wicked, but I promise you something else. The wicked are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. They have chosen a different love. This brings us to the results, verses 19 through 21. I'm watching my watch today. So I'm trying. I'm almost there. 
Santa, throw something at me if I go too long. Got it? All right. So the results, verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment. So this is a self-incurred judgment, the rejection of the provision that is given. This is the judgment that light, the light, Jesus Christ has come into the world, but the men love the darkness rather than Jesus, rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested or seen as having been originated or wrought in God. A website called The Experience Project. It describes itself as the place to share life experiences from people like us. Uh, by the time January 2014 came around, the site had had over 36 million visitors. Visitors of the site are asked to share their thoughts on certain questions that are posed by the site, like what does loneliness feel like and other questions who do you like to spend the most time with and so on and so on there was one question that was posed or they were asked to comment or respond to this statement i prefer darkness over light Young woman, going by the screen name of Beyond Repair, offered a particularly honest and insightful response. Here's what Beyond Repair says. I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you can't see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because you are free from what you were. You can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. I kind of, this is from, straight from the horse's mouth, isn't it? Do you think, did she take this quote from Jesus Christ and just kind of put it? into modern day terms do we need to elaborate any further what have they done they have returned they have not returned the love of god the love that god has for them with a love for him but they rejected that love why because they love the darkness why do people love the darkness because our deeds are evil we don't want them to come out into the light. We want to keep doing exactly what we're doing. It's fun. It's what life is all about. This is this self-incurred judgment pictured in metaphorical terms. Instead of returning God's love for them with a love for him, they reject Jesus the light who has come into this world. And they chose a love of darkness because they want to continue doing what they're doing. They want to continue in their pride. They want to continue in their lust. 
They want to continue in their evil deeds. They hate the light and they suppress the light for fear that these evil deeds are one day going to be exposed. Darkness, as this girl says it, is heaven to them. So what does the world do with light? If the world doesn't like this definition, if people don't like what is being said in God's Word, in the Gospel, what do you do? You just change it. Right? You, you make new definitions. You change existing definitions. You make new laws that which God finds, that which, that which God rejects. You make those things acceptable. You call good evil and you call evil good. You take those who are trying to tell the world a message of love and hope and you make them out to be messengers of hell. You call love hate, and you create your own truth, and your own light, and your own salvation. Create your own religion, and you make the world choose. Your light, or my light? You create theories that say that we are absolutely accountable to no one and you applaud others who do the same, you normalize sin so that you can parade your evil in the middle of the day. That's what the world does. Tell you what, you can change all of this. You can create new meanings. You can make new definitions. You might even change some people's minds along the way, but there is one person that you will not change. He's the one who has the final say. He's the one who determines what is good and what is evil. What is light and what is darkness. And he says... Those who love the darkness will stand condemned. Maybe you're here today or maybe you're listening online and maybe you fall into this camp. Maybe you think everything that I'm saying is just absolute hogwash. I don't think I've said that word in years. Hogwash. Maybe you think it's not true. Maybe you say to yourself, there's no such thing as right and wrong. Truth is relevant to my situation. God is love. God wants me to be happy. I'm going to ask you something if you're that person out there today, and I, I, I do this out of love. My question to you is, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you absolutely positive? That truth is relevant? That truth can be molded into what makes us happy? 
Are you sure that there's no such thing as heaven and hell? Are you sure there's no such thing as right and wrong? Are you sure that Jesus wasn't God incarnate and died on the cross for your sins so that you can have eternity with him? Are you sure? Are you willing to bet your life on it? Because that is exactly what you are doing. Because if you reject him, there's something you need to accept. The consequences of that rejection. And I don't want you to do that. Jesus has already accepted those consequences. Take a hold of him. They love the darkness. There's a flip side. There's always an exception. Then there are those who do what? Who walk in the truth. Who practice the truth. Who love the light. Who come to the light. These are not individuals who are intrinsically superior to those who don't. These are individuals in which God has done something. And by doing something in their hearts, they reveal that in their deeds and in their actions. We are those who do what? Who walk in the light. We welcome the light. I, I don't have a problem telling you that I'm a sinner. I am one big fat sinner. I sin every single day. But I have an advocate for that sin. And I know he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and to cleanse me all from all unrighteousness and that I'm going to spend eternity with him. We welcome the light. We walk in the light because of what he has done in us. Two options, two repercussions, two results, two camps of people. That's it. No middle ground. There's no Sweden in spirituality. No neutrality. We're either with him or we're not. Jesus is speaking all this to Nicodemus, isn't he? Why? He wants Nicodemus to believe. And I think Nicodemus does believe. I think we see later on that Nicodemus, hearing what Jesus says here and seeing what Jesus did on the cross, Nicodemus becomes one of those who accept the truth. But that's not the point, is it? The point is, not what he did, but what will you and I do? So everyone kept asking me about my vacation and fishing. How is fishing? Well, fishing was really interesting. I, I was able to experience a sermon illustration I almost drowned. Don't worry, I'm okay. You haven't noticed. But if you want to bake me something out of sheer gratefulness that I'm still alive, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. I, I think that's a natural response to the fact that I didn't drown. No, I, this, this was really, really serious for me. And I, I try to be serious. I'm being serious right now. I was crossing some rapids that I, I questioned to begin with. So that was my first problem. 
I should not have been crossing these rapids. And what I realized afterwards is my cleats that usually are supposed to grip slippery rock were not really all there. So they were gone and the water was coming down and I was crossing these rapids and all of a sudden my feet got swept out from underneath me. And it all happened in a matter of seconds, in an instant. And there I was, and normally I fall. I fall a lot when I fish, but this time was really, really different. Because I was facing upstream, and the rapids were flowing very, very quickly, they started filling my waders with water. And it's weird because I was just watching a TV show, a fly fishing show, where a guy was being taken down the river. And they had to send a boat out to get him. And I remember the guy saying, if your waders had filled up with water, you would have been goner. And I'm thinking all of this in my head. And I said to myself, my waders are filling up with water. If I continue on this path, I am going to be in very serious trouble. Because beneath me was more turbulent rapids and much deeper water and I'm sorry that my family has to hear this again because they were very upset with me that this happened and there I was I was being taken down my waders are filling with water but thankfully thankfully God provided a rock and I remember seeing that rock and I had my rod in my hand I let go of that rod and it made me rephrase the verse that if your rod causes you to stumble and drown, let it go. It's better to lose your rod and be saved than to drown with it. But I clinged on to that rock with all of my life. I leapt up on it, banging up my leg pretty bad, but keeping my life. Got up on the rock. And I dumped what had to have been liters of water out of my waders. Reliving what could have happened. It's really funny because the next time I went fishing, I went fishing with a, a buddy of mine. We stopped by a yard sale while we were switching spots fishing. And I was wearing my waders and this, this, this old Mainer is sitting in a chair. And he looks at me in the waders and he goes, ah, yeah, you know what my friends say about those things? Those are the best way to drown. And I said, brother, you have no idea. That man was speaking the truth. I knew he was speaking the truth because of what I had experienced recently. Folks, God gave us Jesus Christ in a mission of love to save us from drowning in a sea of condemnation. God has provided a rock. Cling, even the turkey likes that. Cling to that rock. Apart from Jesus Christ, our spiritual waders are being filled to the rim with judgment. You and I, apart from Christ, are being taken downstream to a pool of death and destruction. But God has sent us a rescuer. He has thrown us a lifeline in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grab a hold of him 
cling to him, believe in him, and I promise you, you will live forever. No judgment. There's no other chance coming. This is it. No other rocks to grab a hold of. No other rescuer. If you haven't believed in him today, I implore you to do so right now because you don't know if tomorrow is coming. You might be swept away into that judgment, facing that for all eternity. For God so loved this world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Folks, that's a true statement. Father, we praise you for that truth. I pray, Lord, that those who have not received the gift of Jesus Christ, that they do so right now. They grab a hold of Him, knowing, believing, that they will be set free from all eternity, from an eternity of judgment, a judgment that Jesus Christ took Himself so that you and I, so that we could become the righteousness of you in him. We love you. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.